Two quick notes before the episode starts. One is that I mistakenly called Erica's second book by the wrong name. It is The Small Blades Hurt, not The Small Blade Hurts. The Small Blades Hurt. Apologies to Erica. Second, I've had to put the explicit tag on this episode because there is some very brief swearing around the 2330 mark. Apologies to those of you who tend to listen around young children. You can send them out of the room or if you want them to turn into cool children, keep them in the room and make them listen. Thanks. Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, critic, or reader to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for whatever reason, old or new, well-known or obscure. We'll talk about what engages us, what delights us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see how the poem and the conversation turn. And then we'll also have a little bit of silliness later because I can't help myself. On today's episode, I am stoked to talk with someone I briefly overlapped with in grad school, Erica Dawson. Erica is the author of three excellent collections of poems, When Rap Spoke Straight to God, The Small Blade Hurts, and Big-Eyed Afraid. Her poems have appeared in so many places that I'm only going to mention several inclusions in the Best American Poetry Anthologies because there's only so much time in the podcast. And she's been featured on PBS NewsHour and in the New York Times Magazine and Oh, the Oprah Magazine, which is a hell of a trifecta. Erica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm happy to do it. So you've brought in Anne Sexton's poem, Her Kind. I have. I'll ask you to read it in a moment. Did you have anything you want to say before you read it? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, then (laughs) over to you. Go right ahead. All right. Her Kind. I have gone out, a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night. Dreaming evil, I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman, quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by learning the last bright roots, survivor where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Thank you. I love the way that you read that. So why why did you choose this poem? What's sort of the main reason? The main reason is just, I love it. I love everything about it. I was first introduced to it as an undergrad in an introduction to poetry class. And I just immediately latched on to the idea of, of being this witch that goes out at night and then you're in the woods hiding with, you know, elves and things. And <laughs> there's just something so luscious about the language. I just find it irresistible in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I feel completely the same. I think I first read Sexton when I was like 18 or 19, not in a class, but I had a friend who was totally into Plath and Sexton. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to read her. But I haven't read her kind in a number of years. And so I'm very, very glad to read it again. 
The lush language, maybe starting there, like what are the phrases, the things in there that just that you find yourself latching on to? Because I there are lots of great things in here. Yeah. I think that a lot of the the lush language comes from the rhymes and, and the rhyming words are so like sturdy. You know what I mean? <laughs> things like disaligned and I've been her kind and light and night and witch and hitch there's something that's like sort of heavy about those words and then she's just got alliteration everywhere the black air braver at night the hitch and the houses the woods and the warm caves she's just playing with sounds in so many amazing ways and the the music of the poem is really sort of mesmerizing i think in a lot of ways I, I agree totally. It's a poem that uh, I loved sort of re- reading aloud to myself as I was getting ready for this dreaming evil, the times with the alliteration, but also those nice long vowels mm-hmm. waved my nude arms at villages going by. And even, this is hard for me to explain. Even when there's not repetition of sounds, I feel like the vowels have this great movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to, to, I find this sometimes easy to explain when I'm teaching and sometimes I feel like I'm just talking in circles, <laughs> but there's something about placement of the vowels. And I think a lot of it comes with driver, survivor. Mm-hmm. The rhymes are doing so much of that as well. Yeah. And she's super crafty with where she in jams and where she end stops. Mm-hmm. In the third stanza, once you get to survivor, And then you've got those two lines that in jam, it's just like the momentum picks up in such a powerful way. And then you get those sentences that are, you know, taking the space of a single line. And it's like a punch to your gut, the way she's sort of drawing you in and out and in and out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how every stanza, there's a kind of regularity to it or what seems like regularity, and yet there's so much variation. Every stanza is basically made up of three sentences. Mm-hmm. And the last two are always a woman like that is not a woman quite, or a woman like that is misunderstood. And yet there's that third stanza. It just, the mix of the enjambment, the way that there's just almost no pausing. Survivor where your flames still bite my thigh and my rib crack where your wheels whine yeah like that's just that's so fantastic yeah i know you're almost out of breath as you're saying it and then you know she just drops a bomb with a woman like that is not ashamed to die period and then gives us the refrain one last time it's it's just genius i think in its construction the yeah the movement of that is amazing a woman like that is not a woman quite and then a woman like that is misunderstood And then, like, you're absolutely right, a woman like that is not ashamed to die. Like, she set it up with these almost humorously understated Mm -hmm. things. And then that is just so bald and direct. Yeah. (laughs) I have kind of an odd place I want to move the conversation next. When she gave public reading, she always started with this poem. Mm -hmm. And apparently also uh, created a band called Her Kind, which <laughs> I, I haven't been able to find any recordings of that. But she she always started with this and she said to the audience that she needed, quote, to warn you of what kind of poet I am. <laughs> and I'm just curious for your take on that, the idea of like, what is this poem announcing her to be in a mm-hmm. way? I think in a lot of ways, she's presenting herself as as an outcast or a 
a misfit, something that's a little subversive to their our traditional ideas of womanhood, whatever that means, society's construction of it. She, it sounds like she was just sort of giving a heads up that, you know, I'm going to give you me and I own it and I'm proud of it. And then she would read the poem. I didn't I didn't know she read this at the beginning of every reading. I think that's terrific. I think so, too. She apparently didn't like giving readings, which I'll have a little more to say about in a while. But yeah, I love the idea that she's like, this is thesis statements, not the right way of describing it. But this is this is how this is the first act. This is the symbol crash. So, you know, what's coming. Yeah, but it's. It's sad in a way, too, because it's not my kind. It's her kind. Mm-hmm. And that that last line hits, or next to last line hits so hard, a woman like that is not ashamed to die. That past tense is killer because she's basically confessing the other side of that, that she feels that there, that shame is there and that she knows it mm-hmm. and that it's, I have been her kind. So it feels like she's announcing, in a way, what she used to be without sort of telling us exactly what she is now. Mm-hmm. She's not 10 fingered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's hard to sort of place Sexton as the individual in relation to what she's saying in the poem. You know what I mean? Like the timing of it or, or her idea of belonging and not belonging. She definitely makes some interesting choices, especially with that ashamed and the penultimate line. And and she's been different things. It's not Lady Godiva in the last one. It's sort of, but it's Lady Godiva like, and then suddenly Joan of Arc like being yeah. turned. <laughs> but before that, it's this weird, feral, wild domesticity. Yeah, that that she embodies. And, and even before that, she's the possessed witch. I feel like opening a reading with that is kind of to say, oh, you don't know what's coming. Yeah, like you 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 feel it, but you're going to see the other kinds <laughs> of her. Yeah, I think that's that's super cool. Her own sort of version of domesticity that isn't quite, you know, Donna Reed or Father Knows Best. Um, yeah. Something very, very different. And she's been misunderstood because of that. But she's not she's not ashamed of it. She owns it. I have been her kind. I have been her kind. So much of the poem is that we see the sort of the weirder part of the her kind, like announcing the witch. The second stanza, I have found the warm caves in the woods. And then the next two lines filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods. For a couple of lines there, she's totally in the domesticity before fix the suppers for the worms and the elves. I love the, the pair of worms and elves. And I feel like I can't explain why it's worms and elves of all the things it could be. I mean, elves obviously picks up the rhyme with shelves. But I find I find them both great. And I'm just not sure why it's worms and elves necessarily instead of two other things that, of course, I can't bring. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's an interesting choice. I've never really thought about the pairing that she gives us there. I don't know, maybe maybe worms sort of as illustrating the the earthiness of it, the naturalness of it, if you will. And then the elves, something more mystical or or magical. Yeah. No, I like that because we end up with 
the witch in the first stanza, the 12 fingered out of mind witch, and then the elves, and then the fantastic, I guess, just drops away for the last stanza. And yeah, there's no kind of veil or protection of the fantastical. There's a, there's a very clear movement towards something that is unprotected by that. We are in reality. Yeah. A woman being burned. I can't help but think of Lady Godiva, even though it's sort of an inversion because it's not Lady Godiva on a horse. It's she's in the cart. She's right. waving her new arms, but it's <laughs> it's not in celebration or in strength. Have you ever tried to write anything in imitation of this or, or written a poem with this poem in mind? I have tried poems in the past where I sort of take on different personas and imagine myself in different ways, but it's usually just sort of a an older or younger version of myself. I'm not thinking about something that's, you know, that feels really different from Erica, the individual. So I haven't really pushed myself to try something that's as fantastical as this. It feels very much in the realm of fairy tales when it mm -hmm. starts. The 12-fingered, like, there's a way in which the language of that first stanza, it's got so much of the the fantastical obviously the possessed witch haunting the air dreaming evil 12-fingered and yet there are also the phrases in it that are sort of in the realm of the way that mad women are talked about i have gone mm -hmm. out out of mind not out of yeah. my mind i love that it's out of mind instead of out of <laughs> yeah. my mind or out of her mind sometimes with a poem like this i feel like a lot of what I'm doing is just pointing at it and saying, isn't this great? <laughs> yeah, no, that's when you first presented the idea of me, you know, bringing a poem to the table. This was the first one that came to mind. And then I was like, but maybe I like it too much for that. Like, there's not much of a discussion there because it's just like, look at this. This is cool. Yeah, I know. I have carved out more sort of intellectual discussion things to say just because in Rereading the poem, I felt like I have to do my homework a little mm. bit, which is where I picked up that she started every reading with this. Here's the question I want to ask. And it's it's a broader question. You know, she's described as a confessional poet or categorized as that. And I want to give you the Academy of American Poets definition of confessional poetry. Okay. This is the way that they start their definition of it. Confessional poetry is the poetry of the personal or I. I don't feel like this is a very satisfactory definition of confessional poetry because all of a sudden any lyric poem with an I could be read as confessional. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not much of a definition. I feel like, and this is not to bash the Academy of American Poets, but it, it feels like the idea of confessional poetry is not about the I. It's about readers being made uncomfortable by admissions that they don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's sort of, in my mind, less about what pronoun you choose to use and more about taking something that's personal or private and making it public in a very sort of odd way. 
Because, yeah, I mean, if if we're just looking at that first person pronoun, we every like 90 percent of poetry becomes <laughs> becomes confessional. And I'm sure that all the poets would have trouble with that idea. Yeah, exactly. And this this shows up in reviews from the 1970s. There were a lot of reviews, mostly written by men, but not mm-hmm. exclusively that are essentially bashing her for writing about things that are thought of as personal or thought of as private. There's the James Dickey. And remember, this is the James Dickey who wrote. (laughs) I think I know where you're going. I think I know this quote. (laughs) He wrote in the review, it would be hard to find a writer who dwells more insistently on the pathetic and disgusting aspects of bodily experience. (laughs) I just can't help but think, wow. Yeah. Squeal like a pig, James. Yeah, exactly. So now that's okay. But when a woman does it, it's not. And the thing is, like, obviously, we're just talking about this one poem. And there's so much more of her poetry that we could talk about. But that's not in in this poem at all. And I feel like I feel like there are certain poets who you read poem after poem, and you feel like, wow, this is this is amazing. This is amazing. And then there are poets, and I think of Anne Sexton this way, who could be kind of hit or miss. And she apparently said Mm -hmm. in interviews, oh, yeah, a lot of my poems are bad, which good for her. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) We should all be more honest. Exactly. (laughs) There's the part of me that's like, well, yeah, we should make an honest assessment. But it's also like if you come up with five bangers and I'm saying bangers because this is already that word has already been used in like three recordings, uh, not by me. (laughs) It's like if you come up with five bangers, you're an excellent poet. And I feel like that credit was not given to her. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I found a, a, I was doing a little bit of homework myself and found a quote from Robert Lowell, who was confessional in his own way, especially in certain collections of his. But he said that her poems became meager and exaggerated. And that just seems wildly unfair (laughs) to me. And I also don't know how they could be both meager and exaggerated. That's a little confusing for me. I think so, too. She used the word exaggerated at some point, and I, w- I can't cite it at this point because I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't put it into my huge document of things. But there are people who pick up on that idea of her being exaggerated and then describe what she's doing as an act. And this is why I feel like I've always had a trouble with the term confessional poetry, which is that, well, part of it is just like the poem is not the poet, you know, it's, but also it becomes an easy way of like tying biography to poetry, which I always Mm -hmm. find myself resisting. So like when I ask students about Sylvia Plath, like, oh yeah, she was depressed. She committed suicide. Lowell was, was, had his own madness. And I just feel like that cages the poems into something that they're really not. You know, that her kind is a poem that, yes, is about her experience, but the word kind is important there, that it's, you know, it's not just I have gone out. Like the her kind points to a group of women who are in the poem isolated from each other, but that are a kind of woman who they're not, they can't be reduced. Mm -hmm. Like these three stanzas are showing us three different women. It's many hers. It's it's plural. I also get annoyed when 
people spend too much time with the biography of the poet, especially when we're talking about poets who dealt with mental illness, mm-hmm. all of a sudden everything becomes about their mental illness. And that's just an unfair characterization. And, you know, she's she chose the language here for a reason. I think a lot of times people suggest that confessional poets just sort of do the stream of consciousness where they're just sort of like vomiting their experiences on page. It's just a Xerox of their experience. Mm -hmm. But the poem is so well crafted. And like you were saying, that distance between Sexton and these women that she's describing, it doesn't say I am her. It says I have been her kind. Mm -hmm. She's talking about the experience of tons of women not just not just her it it's i don't know it doesn't seem sort of private in the way that we talk about confessional poetry at all it's it's loud it announces itself it's confident yeah i'm reminded there's a a john stuart mill quote about and i'm i'm paraphrasing it pretty badly here that a lyric poem is an utterance that is overheard which kind of makes any mm-hmm. lyric poem a kind of confession because it's the person talking to themselves theoretically and we just happen to overhear <laughs> it thinking of sexton only as somebody who dealt with mental health issues and this is true of plath this is true of lowell it it's not mm-hmm. fair to the poem or to mental illness yeah. like the language of this what you said about it being so crafted that phrase rearranging the disaligned that word disaligned is just so fascinating in the context of thinking about being outcast or being set aside or being misunderstood is an easy way of understanding someone not being an insider and being cast out, but disaligned, especially rearranging the disaligned. Like the language is pulling on all of these, all of these prefixes that are making it just more and more off kilter in a way. Yeah. It, yeah it's not arranging the disaligned it's rearranging the disaligned it's not understood it's misunderstood have you ever sorry this is a complete subject (laughs) and and then i want to come back to the confessional poetry thing because i just have an interesting tidbit have you ever taught this poem i actually have not yeah i don't know for some reason i i sort of carry it close to my chest and Mm -hmm. and don't want to sort of open it up for that particular context. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I've never taught this poem. I ask in part because in one other, another conversation for the podcast with the poem that they had chosen, they said, yeah, I don't teach this poem. It's so mm-hmm. funny that you're like, I want to talk about this poem, but I don't want to teach it because it's precious in a way. <laughs> and then I talked to a critic with a, a fantastic episode about A.R. Ammons. And he's like, I don't understand that. Why wouldn't you want to teach something you're interested in? And I feel like there's just a it becomes precious because it's easier to think, what if I wrote something like that? And I just wanted people to look and say, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't really, I mean, it's teaching in a way, but it feels, I feel like I'm cheating when I'm, when I'm just pointing at something and looking and saying, isn't that great? (laughs) Yeah. It feels like cheating because it doesn't feel sort of scholarly enough, but I mean, That's what I want people to do with my work is, you know, (laughs) say, look here, you know, this is super cool. So I think I think that that Sexton would appreciate this this kind of treatment. I think so. And that makes that makes me feel I'm patting myself on the back and patting us on the back for doing right by her. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I'm glad that's what we're doing. The the tidbit is that at one point in her career, when she was categorized as a confessional poet, she said, no, I don't like the term. I'm not a confessional poet. And then at a certain point, she totally switched and she said, I am the only confessional poet. I love how brash she is in this yeah. poem and in, even in the poems that I think people would describe as messy or not as obviously crafted where mm -hmm. there are jarring line lengths and jarring line breaks and the subject matter feels much less within the expected realm of what a poem should be. And there's something really powerful about that brashness that I think is dismissed a little too easily. Yeah, I totally agree 100%. Yeah, I remember being so excited when as a little 18-year-old poet in a poetry class, I wrote Motherfucker in a poem and I was just, oh, I'm so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that moment for me, too. <laughs> it was a very fake kind of brashness for, on my part, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Okay, very quickly, I have an ad break. We are very lucky to have sponsors in each episode because I am very lucky to have connections. Like me, you have too much stuff. Houses and rooms are full of perfumes. The shelves are crowded with perfumes. Where are you going to put all of it? Bags of leaves and grass, multiple editions of the same book, reviews you've written of your own book, long lines, crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, democratic vistas, America, America singing, the impalpable sustenance of me from all things at all hours of the day, the similitudes of the past and those of the future, the glories strung like beads on my smallest sights and hearings, on the walk in the street and the passage over the river, the varied carols you hear, the armies of those I love, life immense in passion, pulse, and power. Where are you going to put all this stuff? The answer is simple. Bring it all on down to Walt's storage. That's right. Walt's storage. We contain multitudes. So for the second part, I want to do something I'm calling Rate the Reader. And we're going to listen to a poet read their poem and see whether we like the way they read. And this came to mind for me because, as I recall, you, Erica, are a fantastic reader. I still remember a reading that you gave in the engineering building at the University of Cincinnati. And I don't remember poetry readings that well. And I was just like, this is one of the handful of, of readings where the reader feels really in control of what they're doing. So part of it is I'm, I'm curious what your response is to the poet reading the poem I'm about to share. I wanted to share Anne Sexton reading her kind, because I'll be curious if this is what you expected it to be or not, and what you like about it, and if there's anything that you find yourself, I don't know, resisting or not crazy about. Her kind. I have gone out a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night, dreaming evil. I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman, quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. 
I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots, survivor where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Is it what you expected? I, I'm getting the sense it's not. It's not quite what I expected. And I'm trying to gauge what it was that I was expecting. And I'm not sure, but there was something in the way that she read the refrain that just sounded sort of off to me. Like like her voice didn't deliver the weightiness of it. You know, it's not a moment to bust out your Charlton Heston voice and, you know, <laughs> proclaim from the mountaintop. <laughs> but it just sounded a little lighter than I expected it to sound. I have been her kind, you damn dirty <laughs> apes. That's great. Breaking out the Charlton Heston voice. There's something oddly, I did not expect it to sound as kind of down to earth. And I don't mean this in a negative way, but kind of tired. Mm hmm. There's a part of me that really likes it. And in, part of it is that I feel like she paces it beautifully. Yeah. But there's something, and she hits certain words really beautifully, where, where your flames still bite my thigh. Like, she, there's something crisp about the way she reads, but there's something about the way she gets to the, I have been her kind, where I've wanted something different. Yeah. I can't put my finger on what it is. Yeah, I don't know what I think is missing but it just feels like it feels like there's something that she like she's maybe holding back in a way i'm not sure it's just it's just not what i expected when she gets and i was reading on the screen as she was reading and i was about to scroll even though i knew that was the end of the poem and i wonder if it's that it's a refrain but at the end it doesn't feel like she's reading the last refrain mm -hmm. there's something a little tossed off about it and you're right it can't be shouldn't have to be the charlton heston voice and the thing is had i attended this reading my response would not have been you know she could have read the last line differently had i seen <laughs> yeah. her read this i would have been <laughs> blown away you know we live in the era where we can replay it and pause it and pick it apart and i i, I love 95 percent of the way she reads it and that last yeah. line i just want something different i felt like i felt like she got into the the phrase that starts with survivor all the way to where your wheels wind that she gave that a lot of energy and that she was kind of not breathless by the time she got to a woman like that is not ashamed to die, but it felt like it didn't have the force that it deserved that she kind of attacked it a little, a little too soon and, and left us feeling like there was something mm -hmm. missing. I, I think that that gets at it really nicely. Cause I do love the way she reads that long sentence mm -hmm. in the last stanza before she gets to the last two lines. Mm. I do want to note though, she hated giving readings. So I found an article from the 1970s and I did not write down the, the author's name. I guess I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. He basically, it's an essay about her coming to give a visit at the university where he is, and he spent time with her after picking her up from the airport, and this is the way he describes it. A short while later, after he picks her up from the airport, we settled into a quiet, air-conditioned cocktail lounge for a long bout of talking and drinking. 
I learned that her rhythm for preparing for a reading of her poems was quite different from what I had anticipated and planned for. She likes to have an uninterrupted two or three hours before the reading spent with lots of booze and someone to talk to. This is to last right up to the moment of the reading. Thus, she can then go on stage at the peak of her liquor high. In no case does she want to be either sober or alone beforehand. She hates readings, and this is the way she prepares herself externally to endure them. She said they affected her so badly that she would sometimes cry when she would get off the plane back home in Boston. So that makes me feel for her. And yet I also can't help laughing at it because her two to three hours of drinking, (laughs) that gets her to her liquor high. And so this is a personal question. When you are drinking, when do you reach your liquor high? Because two to three hours in, I I feel feel like like I'm faster than that. (laughs) I'm a late lightweight and I was I'm also, I guess, not growing up in the or didn't live in the culture of poets drinking in the sixties and seventies. I think I've had times where I've had a a glass of wine before a reading started or something, and that seemed to be okay, but if I drank heavily before stepping up to a microphone, that would just be a train wreck of like epic proportions. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Same here. One beer or one glass of wine, I would be okay. I would be loose, but yeah, two to three hours, I would be off the rails. Yeah. So, but more power sturdy, to her, I guess. drinker. <laughs> For that, that skill. So the last thing I want to do, and I was not planning this until yesterday, I want to play little game this is a game i'm calling what's the deal with this guy this is from the same essay so he admits in the opening line he's essentially a fanboy he doesn't use the word fanboy because he's writing in the 1970s but he's describing in pretty thorough detail everything that happens between him picking her up from the airport and taking her to the reading and then the reading itself i want to read this paragraph and i'm going to ask what is the deal with this guy This is his description of Anne Sexton. She is a tall woman with a rich natural tan. Her body is slender. She is flat-chested by America's inflated standards for such things. And she has that suggestion of a stomach appropriate to all Aphrodites in contrast to America's deflated standards for such things. Her short hair is dark and clings softly to her face. Up close, her features are angular and one is startled by their beautiful mobility. Her mouth is wide and sensual. Her smile is echoed by two dimples in her cheeks. At the edge of each is a small mole, the one on the left being a bit more noticeable. They make nice touches, as do the very slight suggestion of freckles and the small mole at her right eyebrow. Her eyes are even more expressive than her face. They are large, and one could call them blue, I guess, but they seem to change color. They must have a considerable touch of green in them. So here's my question, Erica. um, What's the deal with this guy? I don't know. (laughs) That is quite a list of observations. I don't know if I've ever looked at anyone that carefully Mm -hmm. in my entire life to describe with that kind of that kind of detail. But I I don't know. I don't know what's with that guy. Yeah, it's it's well beyond love. Like in the first few sentences, the she's flat chested by America's standards, and she has that suggestion of a stomach. Which there's a there's a different deal with that guy in those sentences. But it's 
it's almost like love, but it's it's more like fanaticism and yeah, obsession. Yeah, it's, it's definitely her it's definitely obsession. You you just don't need yeah. to be in someone's face that much. It's just too much attention to detail. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah. I, I only want exactly. my dermatologist to notice my moles like that. I, and I, I just, I have to ask about the first part, how you react to it. It's the way, for me, I laughed when I read it. I almost emailed it mm-hmm. to you just as a, like, here's a side thing. She is flat chested by America's inflated standards for such things. And she has that suggestion of a stomach appropriate to all Aphrodite's in contrast to America's deflated standards for such things. What's your response to that? Well, my first response is that I want Sexton to run away as soon as possible from whoever this young man is. But I, those sort of characterizations of her body and then connecting that with our like American expectations of things is very strange to me. I feel like I've read this kind of description in magazine pieces about female musicians, but I don't think I've ever encountered it. I definitely haven't. Poet. Oh, I would love to find a 16th century description of Shakespeare and the mat, like his Shakespeare (laughs) has a bit of the dad bod. However, I feel like part of what he's doing is he's trying to be high and mighty about people judge women too harshly in America. We have these standards. And yet he's also doing this awful ogling at the same time the stomach of the aphrodite yeah (laughs) it's just that's that's so creepy yeah it it seems like something i i would have thought was very clever when i was 18 and maybe at worst at 22 so (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what age he was when he wrote it i'm it definitely seems young yeah erica thank you so so much for doing this i've had a great time Uh, I apologize for making you feel gross by reading the <laughs> description of Anne Sexton. It's 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 okay. I wasn't expecting that to be part of my day, but I'm sure I will carry it with me for a long time. Good? No, not good. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for listening. Go read her kind. You'll find a link in the show notes. Go read Erica's poems. And then... Otherwise, have a great day. Go read some poems, pet some dogs, and support some striking workers wherever you find them. Bye.